0: We continue the story of Paul's imprisonment in Caesarea. You'll remember that Felix has been recalled to Rome. He had mishandled a riot in Caesarea and returned to Rome in disgrace, where he was tried and barely escaped execution. As a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison to be handled by his successor, one Porcius Festus. Festus ruled over Judea from about A.D. 59 to A.D. 62 when he died of natural causes. We pick up the story in verse 1. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, Asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. Festus, as the governor of Judea, ruled over the province from the city of Caesarea. Jerusalem was sometimes referred to as the second capital of the region. Therefore, in due course, Festus made a courtesy call on the Jewish leaders to inquire as to what concerns they had that he ought to begin looking into. And at the top of their agenda was their dispute with the Apostle Paul. That in itself is interesting. It's been two years since they made their case against him in Caesarea, but still they are very concerned to see him convicted. That gives you an idea of how disruptive the gospel was to first century Judaism. The Jewish leaders saw the gospel of Jesus Christ as a clear and present danger to their survival as a people and to their particular power and influence over the people And thus, they were prepared to do absolutely anything to kill this movement in the womb. Thus, we learn that they have hatched yet another murderous plot. They ask for the case to be moved to Jerusalem so that they can ambush Paul along the way. Festus does not wish to begin his term as governor by appearing weak before his subordinates. And therefore, he says that if the Jews wish to further prosecute this matter, they can do it at his convenience in Caesarea, not he at their convenience in Jerusalem. Thus, the matter appears closed, at least for now. Verse 6, after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. Just a quick word here on up and down. If you are looking at a map as you read or hear this story, then Caesarea probably looks up from Jerusalem. If by up, you mean north. But in this story, up means up the mountain and down means down the mountain. Jerusalem is a city on a hill. Everything is down from Jerusalem and everybody always goes up to Jerusalem. Having ridden in a bus going up to Jerusalem, that phrasing makes a great deal of sense to me. But if you're reading or hearing this story without that frame of reference, it could be a little confusing. Verse 6 goes on to say, And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, That they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Luke's summary here is very brief, which is likely due to the fact that we've now heard the charges against Paul and his defense multiple times. Once again, Paul asserts that his faith in Christ is merely the logical extension of his faith in the Old Testament law and prophets. Christianity is the logical outcome of Judaism. That's Paul's position. And furthermore, he's done nothing that warrants the attention of Roman law. His faith is peaceful to Rome and congenial to Old Testament Judaism. So why am I here, he says. (laughs) That's his counter-argument, and it rests essentially unchallenged. The Jews don't bring any evidence, and they don't say anything that makes much of an impression on Festus. But they are very agitated, and therefore Festus feels like he has to do something to keep the peace. Verse 9 says, But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Now, Festus isn't offering to turn the case over to the Sanhedrin. He still says that the trial will be before me, but he is proposing a change of venue. I. Howard Marshall explains here that it was the custom for a Roman judge to set up a group of advisors to aid him in coming to a decision. And Paul may well have feared that the chances of gaining neutral advisors in Jerusalem were nil. Close quote. Paul knew that the closer he got to Jerusalem and the more influence the people there had over his case, the less likely he was to get a fair trial. So he resists this proposed change of venue. Verse 10, but Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. All Roman citizens had the right to appeal to Caesar. Now, this wasn't an appeal in the sense that we understand it. This wasn't an appeal to overturn the decision of a lower court. This was an appeal to have the case tried entirely in the highest court. No verdict has been given yet on Paul's case. So this was a mid-process appeal. And as odd as that seems to us, this was a feature of Roman law. As to the reason that Paul makes this appeal, as has been stated above, he may have come to the conclusion that the closer he was to Jerusalem, the more likely his case was to be poisoned and politicized. He has already been in prison longer than warranted by the facts of the case, largely because these local governors want to curry favor with their political subordinates. And so Paul may simply have realized that he needed to get this case out of the political swamp of Judea. Alongside of that, Paul may have realized that this was a tremendous opportunity. Rome was the center of the world at that time, from Paul's perspective, and this would give him the opportunity to preach the gospel on Caesar's dime. It was too good of an opportunity to pass up. Festus, however, has a pretty serious problem. He should have let Paul go. There was nothing in this case that warranted Roman attention. There has been no further mention of temple desecration. That might have made sense to Romans. But the charges now have been distilled down to their essentially theological nature. And Rome was not interested in theology. So Festus ran the risk of being charged with bureaucratic inefficiency. And so he very quickly needed to figure out some sort of charge to write up to send along with the Apostle Paul. Verse 13. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Whenever a new governor takes office, he expects to entertain a variety of guests who will wish to make his acquaintance. Enter the puppet king Agrippa. This Agrippa, known formally as Herod Agrippa II was the son of Herod Agrippa I, as you might well imagine. That was the Herod Agrippa who executed James, the brother of John, back in Acts 12. He was the grandson of Herod the Great, the Herod who tried to kill Jesus back in Matthew 2. He had been appointed as king under the authority of Rome back in AD 52 And he ruled over a territory to the north around Galilee and modern-day Lebanon. However, he also had been given authority over the temple in Jerusalem and was given the right to appoint the high priest. Bernice was actually his sister, not his wife. She was a widow at this time. And many believed that she was living incestuously with her brother. So this is a complicated little family with a long history of violent antagonism towards the church of Jesus Christ. However, they are recruited by the Roman governor Festus to help ascertain a credible accusation to send along with the apostle Paul. Verse 14, and as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king saying, there is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charges laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, They brought no charge, in his case, of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions... I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I'd like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. This is another very unfortunate chapter division. Uh, Chapter 25 should probably end at verse 22, and then verses 23 to 27 should really introduce Paul's speech in chapter 26. However, it is enough for us today to notice that despite all these political machinations, everything really is going precisely according to plan. Yes, on one level, Paul is still in prison because of the weakness of Governor Felix, who is hoping for a bribe. And yes, he languishes on in prison because of the weakness of Governor Festus, who wishes to curry favor with the Jews. But on the other hand, behind it all lies the purpose of and providence of God. This encounter brought about by human weakness and sin is nevertheless the precise fulfillment of the prophecy of the Lord Jesus recorded in Luke 21:12. Jesus said to his apostles, "They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness." David Peterson says here, as in the book of Esther, God is the hidden actor who influences all the events on the stage of history as human beings play their part in the drama that unfolds. Indeed, if the glorified Lord Jesus is the Lord who assures Paul of his destiny in 2311, we may say that the one who called Paul to his service in the first place continues to provide opportunities for his name to be proclaimed to the Gentiles and their kings And to the people of Israel, thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry, Mile One, in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than two percent of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at Into the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand, on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at IntoTheWord.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the Into the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.